You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, visit sojournmontrose.org. Amen. So after that brief description kind of over the past couple of weeks, um, whether you were here or not, the, the, the past couple of weeks maybe uh, have seemed kind of heavy. Right? In the sense that we have a great and just and righteous God, and He is holy in such a way that it should be really scary to us as it is scary to Isaiah. And we've seen that His church, right, that His people, His, his new dwelling place must be holy as He is holy. And for us as a church, that's got to be, you know, uh, kind of frightening in the sense that for the most part, our unholiness is fairly evident. And then, of course, last week, knowing that the mission of God to, to rescue and redeem people to Himself only happens through a people who are becoming holy. It doesn't work apart from that. That we end up being sort of just a, a place where social justice happens or a place where theology is discussed, but not a place where people come to know and to meet and to be introduced to the living Christ. Right? All of those things are true, and it puts on us almost an intolerable weight when we, when we look at it and then look at the reality of our lives, which is both individually and collectively. We struggle not only regularly, but significantly with the pursuit of holiness. In fact, most mornings for me, uh, it seems like a hopeless endeavor. And, and I think there's a, a few things that are wrapped up in that. Number one, like just, you know, I look in the mirror and I, I see what I see. Um, and, and that reality is pretty evident. But then I also have sort of this unique view of the church and that, that not only am I dealing with all my mess and my sin and trying to figure out how the Lord would redeem that and make me more like Him, but I'm also looking at and being invited into all the sin of the church around me. And look, I do that gladly, but, but on some days, again, on most days, this idea that, that we not only should be, but that we can be a holy people set apart for God's glory and for our good seems impossible. But this morning, I believe this text and this sermon is the gospel exhale of this series. And that I feel like much of these past three weeks, we've kind of been going, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. And anxiety is kind of building up in terms of not only who God is, but who we are and what we're supposed to be and what we're not and, and how all of that makes for, for a, a pretty heavy reality. And yet today, as Peter weaves command and promise together, we will collectively get to go, So 1 Peter 1.13 says this, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
Now, here's the thing. Hopefully, if you've learned nothing else from me, you've, you've learned that, that connecting words like therefore are, are very significant um, in that they are linking to a previous thought or idea in the text that makes what is coming next all the more true, that colors, that informs everything that we're about to read. And so, look, we don't have time to go as in-depth as I would like to in verses 3 through 9, but I'm, gonna, I'm just going to read them, right? This is what it says, and, and this is where the therefore of that verse comes from, right? This is Peter writing, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Verse 4, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and the glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible, filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And it's to that that Peter then says, Therefore, because of that, prepare your minds for action and be sober-minded. So out of this glorious truth in this first part of 1 Peter chapter 1, we get this command from Peter, prepare your minds for action and be sober-minded. Now, I don't think we need to delve in too deeply into what he's calling us to do, but I do want to bring some nuance to it. When Peter tells us to prepare our minds for action, the cultural phrase that he is actually using is linking this or linking this phrase to a preparation for battle. He's saying, prepare, he's saying, get ready, prepare your minds, get in the zone, whatever you've got to do, get ready for action. And really, the, the, if you have an ESV Bible, there's probably a, a little footnote there, or a little asterisk, or a one, or something like that. And at the bottom of the page, it might tell you what, what Peter is actually saying, or, or the phrase as it is sort of actually translated. Or it says, girding up the loins of your mind. Now, some of you are like, I don't know what that means, but it sounds really weird. Uh, and it does. But look, very briefly, very briefly, right? The traditional garb of a Middle Eastern man would have been a, a tunic, essentially, something that went all the way down to their feet. And what what Peter is telling them to do is to gird up their loins, or essentially in preparation for work or in preparation for battle, men would take that cloth up and they would essentially tie it in a fashion to where it was no longer an impediment to them moving quickly or moving freely. And if you were here last week, right, 
the race that we are running, the pursuit of holiness to which we have been called requires that we do what? Lay aside every what? Every weight and sin that clings so closely. We are being told the exact same thing by Peter. So we have some some unity of thought here. And then he tells us to be sober-minded and not just a physical sobriety in the sense that um, we've gotten over our drunken stupor, but a spiritual, a spiritual sobriety. A sobriety where all of our thoughts, all of our affections are kept so as not to be inebriated with or impeded by the pleasures of the world. Right, so we're being given here a command, an imperative, something that we must do. We must prepare ourselves for the difficult work that is ahead, so much so that we need to rearrange how things are set up in our lives, and we need to sober our minds. We need to remind ourselves of what is real. We need to remind ourselves that we have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, being kept for us, guarded by God's own power, that even though now, if necessary, we endure various trials, we can rejoice with joy that is inexpressible, filled with thanksgiving. Because we know that we will obtain the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be sober-minded. But here's where we see the shift. And what we are going to see happen more than once today is that in the self-same verse, as we have a command, a command to be distinct, to be set apart, to be holy for God, we also get a promise from God where he says this, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So we prepare our minds for action, we sober up, we set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us. So here's, here's the thing. We've talked a lot about holiness. We've talked about how the the pursuit of holiness is binding upon anyone who would call themselves a believer, a follower of Jesus. But our hope, our hope is not in our holiness. In fact, our holiness is found in our hope. That's a huge distinction to make, a huge distinction to catch. Our hope is not in our holiness. Our holiness is found in our hope. Here's what I mean by that. We are set apart. We are holy because we hope in Jesus, not because we toe the line of moral uprightness better than other people do. Holiness is not exclusively morality. It includes it for sure, certainly. But true holiness is being governed by what? Being governed by hope in the grace that, get this, will be brought to you. That is no uncertain terms. The grace of God will be brought to you when? At the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's a promise. So we can prepare our minds for action. We can lay aside impediments and those sins that cling so closely, knowing, knowing that that grace will be brought to us. So we have a command to be holy, but we also have a promise that we will be holy. 
Jesus is our hope of future holiness. But here's what's also unique about this text. Jesus is not only our hope of future holiness, but he's also our motivation for holiness right here and right now. Right? Verse 14 and 15 read like this. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. So here's what Peter's saying, right? He's giving us another command. He's saying, as obedient children, we should no longer be conformed to the passions of our former ignorance, but we should be holy as he is holy, and not just in some of our conduct, but in all of our conduct. Unequivocal terms, right? It is, it is clear what he is trying to say. He's giving us a command, an imperative, something we must do. Right? Jesus, he's saying Jesus isn't just your permanent get-out-of-jail-free card. Jesus isn't just the 30 police support stickers that you put on your windshield so that you can drive 100 miles an hour in a 30. Right? He's saying, look, Jesus' work ensures our adoption into the family of God. We're not just covered, we're made new. As obedient children, we live by the new family rules. We are no longer conformed to our former ignorance. We no longer live like we don't know God. Because in Jesus we do. As he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. It's not, it's not hard to understand. But just for clarity's sake, right? Holy in all of our conduct means every aspect of who we are. So that means our thoughts, that means our speech, and it means our actions. So as 2 Corinthians chapter 10 says, we take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. As Jesus in Matthew 12 says, right, the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. We want our hearts to be full of Christ and so to speak Christ, to speak holiness. And of course, in our actions in our conduct in the way we behave in the way we carry ourselves in the way that in the things that we do and in the things that we don't do because God has said that they are either good or not good we have a command we have a motivation to be to be holy we have a motivation to be holy in that one not only have we been commanded it, but we've been promised that it will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So Jesus is not only the motivation for our holiness, he's also the hope of our future holiness. But just as soon as we begin to think that maybe the weight is more that we, than we can bear, Peter comes in again and he gives us a promise. He's given us a command. He's given us a promise. He's given us another command. And here is another promise in verse 16 when it says, Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And in this, Peter is quoting from the book of Leviticus. Now, here's the thing. You would think, right, at first glance, that this is another command. But it's actually a promise. This seemingly 
imperative passage is actually indicative, meaning this passage that seems like something that we must do is actually something that we are. So this verse, this verse 16, is not telling us what to do. It's telling us who we are. It's another promise weaved into and among the command to be holy from Peter, the promise of a promise-keeping God that he will make us holy as he is holy. That's what he's doing in this verse. He's referencing God speaking himself, right? The very words of God. He says, since it is written, direct quote, God promises, you will be holy as I am holy. So what's Peter telling us to do really in verses 14 and 15? He's telling us to be who we are. He says, look, you've You've already been made children. You are children, so act like children. Children of God, not like maturity level-wise, right? You are the people of God. You belong to Him, and He has promised to His people that they will be holy as He is holy. Be who you are. Peter is saying that the transformation from enemy to son, from old creation to new creation has happened. So let's journey towards our hope of holiness by becoming holy as we go. So I guess the question is, why don't we, right? And for that, Peter's going to give us another command, verse 17. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Seems counterintuitive, doesn't doesn't it? (laughs) Why should I fear God if He is Father, right? Why should I fear God if grace will be brought to me at the revelation of Jesus Christ? Well, I think we have to understand the nature of the fear that Peter is talking about, and it's a a reverent fear rather than, than a punitive fear. And here's the, the argument that I'm going to make, and, and, uh, and maybe I'm just preaching to the choir here, but I think this is probably true of, of all of us in the room who would consider ourselves followers of Jesus. I ask the question, why don't we, right? Why don't we actively strive after becoming holy? What is it that, what is it that impedes us? What is it that, that ultimately is keeping us from that holy endeavor, from that God-given work? And I think it's this. Peter calls us to have a reverent fear for God, but the reality is that we have a reverent fear of the judgment of others more than we reverently fear the judgment of God. Here's what I mean by that. We are more fearful of what our peers have to say about us than what our God has to say about us. Let me expand. So God says that we are holy And that because we are holy, we should be holy as He is holy. But instead of, instead, we fear the pronouncement that we are on the wrong side of history or intellectually stunted or out of touch with reality. Right? In in those circles of friends, in those places, and, and among those people who disagree with me, 
I am more likely to listen to their pronouncement of me and feel shame for my belief about who Jesus is and what he has done for me than I am to fear what God has to say about me, which is that I am adopted, which is that my former ways were actually a a passion devoted to ignorance. Because now I know that Christ is in all and through all and above all, and that in him he has not only created all things, but that he is actively sustaining them. And that I should fear his pronouncement over my life. I should be reverent towards that pronouncement more so than cowing down and bowing to other people's pronouncements about my identity when they have no idea. So Jesus, Jesus is our hope for holiness. He's our motivation for holiness now. And that's all great. But we still have to deal with the fact that we daily reveal our unholiness, don't we? So what do we do when we fail to follow God's commands? What do we do when we fail to prepare our minds, when we fail to be sober-minded, when we fail to be obedient children, when we are conformed to the passions of our former ignorance instead of to our new identity, when we are unholy in our conduct instead of holy? What do we do? I think that when we forsake the holiness we know that God embodies and requires, both for his glory and our joy, Peter gives us, again, another promise. Verse 17, if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, promise knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but he was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your hope and faith are in God. Jesus is not just the hope of our future holiness. He's not just the motivation for our ongoing and current holiness, but he is the ransom for our past unholiness. So Peter urges us to proceed in all of this, knowing that we're going to fail, but knowing that we can find comfort and rest in the fact that we have been ransomed, past tense. And that we've been ransomed, look, not not with gold, not with silver, not with things that that can and eventually will lose all of their value. But we've been ransomed with the precious blood of Christ. So I stated that there was a problem earlier, right? There's there's a problem. One, there's, (laughs) there's this real and difficult struggle for holiness. There's also an active pursuit of unholiness that we all walk into day after day. And that the reason for that, or at least one of the reasons, maybe the chief reason, is that we don't fear God. Instead, we fear others. So what's the solution? I think Peter's given given it to us here. In that, Maybe if we were 
really paying attention, or maybe if we were trying to sort of discern what it is that Peter is saying here, we would have seen that there's a past, present, and future reality in the salvation that Jesus extends to us. You understand what I'm saying by that? That there's, that there's a past reality, that there's a present reality, and that there is a future reality that are all encompassed in what Jesus has done on our behalf. Let me put it to you like this. We have been justified. We have been made right before God. That's why we can come before His throne of grace. We can make requests of God. We can bring our prayers and our petitions to God. Why? Because we've been made right before Him. We've been justified. That took place on the cross, and that is why Jesus can say the words, it is finished, and then be true. We have been justified. It is finished. It doesn't say that we are obedient children if we do X, Y, and Z. It just says, as obedient children. Something took place. But we are presently being sanctified. We are presently being made holy, right? In that it doesn't say, be holy in some of your conduct. It says, be holy in all of it. So, so there will come a time, there will be a point in time when all of what we do is holy and that we are navigating our road towards that place right here and right now. That this promise, that this promise that we will be holy as God is holy is is actively taking shape in our lives right now, not just at some point in the future and not just secured in some place in the past. So we've been justified, we are being sanctified, and we will be glorified, right? It doesn't say you might be holy as I am holy. It says you shall be holy as I am holy. So there is a place, right? There is a point in time that we will arrive at when we are fully and finally made holy as we were always meant to be. Why is this important? I think that most of us, whether it's from a lack of study or a lack of understanding or maybe just, maybe just plain old disbelief, most of us live exclusively in the past narrative of our salvation. Meaning we look back and we said, that was when it happened. And so my, my present reality is really just a, a hearkening back to that. And my future reality is just, that, that's, this is it, this is all I see. I just have to keep reminding myself of that every time that things go awry. And although it is monumentally important what Jesus did, we also need to engage with and understand what he is doing and what he will do. In that the the salvation that Jesus brings and the redemption that he gives us is a redemption of our whole lives, not just a moment. He has infinite and intimate things to say about our past, about our present, and about our future. You see, Jesus secured our holiness in the past. He's working our holiness in the present, and he will complete 
our holiness in the future. So though holiness may seem impossible at times, through Jesus we have a past ransom, a current motivation, and a future hope. Here's what Peter's doing. Peter is addressing all of who we are. He's addressing our head, he's addressing our hands, and he's addressing our hearts, and he's asking us to conform them to Christ. He wants our heads, he wants our minds to be fixed on the hope of the grace to be revealed to us, to be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He wants our hands to be busy about the work of holiness, of tasting that which is to come, and he wants our hearts He wants our hearts to drive all of those things that are taking place in our heads and in our hands. He wants our hearts to know, to know that we are secure in the ransoming work of Jesus who was made manifest for our sake so that the work of our hands and the belief in our heads are empowered by truth as we journey to our common destination. And what is that destination? You know, we always talk about how psyched we are about heaven. You know what's so great about heaven? What's so great about heaven is that there is only holiness and there is no unholiness. That's that's really it. The sin that creates fracture between between us and God and the sin that creates distance between you and I, that all goes away. And so there's no tears anymore and there's there's no sickness anymore. There's no death because what death is a consequence of sin, not of holiness, right? So none of that is present. That's what makes heaven so great. So when Peter is commanding us to be holy in the here and now, he's not trying to bring us to a place of despair and of weeping. He's saying, look, this is true of you. This is your future reality. Have a taste now. In that each idol that we put to death, each moment of sin, each impediment, each weight and sin that clings so closely that we set aside is another another inch of freedom in which we taste and see that the holiness of God is for our good. Holiness is a command and it is a promise. So we can labor towards holiness as a command, knowing that our final holiness is indeed a promise and we belong to a God who, if nothing else, it can be seen in the Bible that He keeps His promises. What God decrees comes to pass. So brother, sister, as Hebrews told us last week, lift up your drooping head, make strong your hands. Because your battle against sin will end because Christ will come. His grace will be brought to you at his coming. And so we can rest in that, and we can remember that this morning. Let's pray.